Welcome to Living with Purpose, the interview series where Francis Lynch speaks to various people about what purpose means to them and explores what gives them the energy to do what they do. Most people have got a story to tell, and these interviews show that extraordinary stories come from ordinary and not-so-ordinary people. So listen on as we explore purpose and meaning, and hopefully learn a little about some great people. My guest in this interview is Rachel West, who is the founder and director of Finding Yoga. Rachel has lived and worked in Europe and Australia, and has found ways to express her developing sense of purpose and meaning through a number of pathways. Some time ago, motivated by personal health challenges, Rachel left an engineering career to immerse herself in London's social enterprise scene for two years and learn about different models for health and social care. She then completed a university diploma in yogic education at the University of Lille in France where she completed action research into awareness through movement and the perception of stress at work. Rachel has grown her company, Yoga for Pain Care, into an organisation with national presence. Health practitioners and yoga teachers from four states of Australia and New Zealand have completed the training and form part of a network to help people with pain live better lives. Rachel is also part of the faculty of the School of Life in Perth and a TEDx speaker coach. Please join me as I learn more about Rachel West. Thanks so much, Rachel, for coming and being part of the Living With Purpose interviews. And um, I'm interested at the beginning of just... What, what do you tell people when they say, who are you or, or what do you do? What, what do you tell people? Oh, that's a good question because at, at one period in my life I stopped telling people what I do for a living and I just refused to speak about it. But I think now it, it does sort of depend on who I'm speaking to. But you know, in short, I'm Rachel West and I run Finding Yoga. And I guess in terms of what I do behind the banner of that business is working with people who want to live a life of, of meaning and working out the practices, particularly the body practices that they might want to have in place to help them make that happen. Yeah. So when when so the company you run, the business you run, Finding Yoga, what, what's that about? What do you do there? In in specific I, I mean I know you've generally given the meaning behind it, but Yeah, it's tailored yoga programs. So programs like Yoga for Pain to help people with chronic pain get back into movement, find their their way in life. Yoga for carers, people who care for a loved one with a disability, again, learning to take time out for themselves so that they can better care for the people they care for, those kind of programs. So how did you come to yoga? I've actually started um, meditating when I was really quite young. I remember being nine and dragging my mum to a meditation session at a folk festival (laughs) And I think we were all a little bit surprised. I don't think meditation was what I actually expected at that time and I kind of went away for a few years until when I was 16, a friend of mine from high school dragged me along to Hatha Yoga at the local gym and at the time for me that was far too gentle. I got bored as a teenager with that class. So it wasn't until sort of my early 20s when I found an Ashtanga yoga practice which was physical enough to keep my brain occupied that I actually started to become a more regular practitioner. Yeah. So um, 
obviously I'm not a yoga sort of yeah. person, but you know, so the Hatha yoga, the Hashtinga. Yeah. So, so what are, what's the differences and how does that all work? Well, the Hatha yoga, I, I guess, originally meant a yoga from the sort of from the, the Middle Ages, perhaps, but uh, with practices to cleanse the body and the mind. So some of the practices are quite we would consider them quite obscure. And that's not, if you go to have the yoga class now, you don't get that. Now you get more of a gentle postural yoga class, so it tends to be a bit slower. Mm. Ashtanga yoga class uh, became popular in the West sort of within the last 100 years because it's a very physical yoga practice where you do a set sequence of, um, of postures every day, the same, same postures, and it was developed by um, Patabi Joyce in, in India. And, and so when when yoga is, you know, when you have people come and, and uh, to to the work that you do, what why do they come to you? What's the what's the sort of way? Is it just the same as every other yoga sort of practice, or is it there's something different about what you're doing? I, I think perhaps like every yoga teacher, I think there is something different about the way that I'm teaching. And one of the reasons people come to me is because I've had an experience with uh, persistent pain and so I've got a way of teaching yoga which seems to work for people with chronic pain who find that even general classes, even beginners' general classes are, are too much for them. Yeah. And so I guess having had the experience in my body of what it means to be too tired or unable to do the kind of yoga that everybody else seems to be doing. And also with my work, there's a really big inquiry process. So, yeah, we do the physical practices, we do meditation, but a lot of it is about inquiring into why am I doing it this way, why am I practising, what are, what would I like to see happen. And is there something that you do one-on-one or is it like with groups of people that you have that? Yeah, it's both. So in one-to-ones, a, a big part of what I, the way I would do what I do is a, a, a big conversation with someone before we even start moving to find out what's going on in their life, what has been going on previously, and so how might the yoga practice support them in the direction that they're going to. And then in group programs, I guess we take advantage of the fact that people can learn from each other. As I've worked as a facilitator in other areas for about 15 years, so I tend to take a... I guess a facilitative approach to designing yoga workshops where there's discussion and, and individual reflection. Yeah, yeah. So, what um, is yoga something that you've always done? I, I know, actually, I know that you've yeah. done other things. So, I'm interested. What's the pathway of, you know, maybe that 15, 16 year old to where you are now? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, I think sometimes with these practices, people find that. A lineage practice comes up and they just know that it's their path. I think for me I was probably a little bit of a slow learner that it took me sort of five years from that first gentle yoga class to the Hatha class to start Ashtanga. But when I started Ashtanga, as much as I loved it, these weird things would happen in class. I'd have an allergic reaction to being upside down. My face would puff up. <laughs> and I went to hospital and they didn't know what was wrong and the only solution they could come up with was, well, don't go to yoga. Uh, and you know, I guess this reflected a time in my life when I was actually quite un- unwell generally. It wasn't just in yoga where I was having these strange reactions to things. And I guess it was what um, it was chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia is how it would be diagnosed. 
And so I spent the next few years trying to find body practices that I could do. Because even though I tried doing beginners classes, gentle classes, basic classes, sometimes I would I'd be I'd be wrecked for days afterwards because of um, something that I couldn't put my finger on. And so it was through, I guess, trying out different practices, particularly Feldenkrais was a big influencer for me. Different styles of meditation, so the Buddhist meditation, that allowed me to develop a, a practice that worked for my body. But I just think yoga was always there in the background. It was just that at the time I couldn't find a class that, that suited me. Yeah. So... Since then, it's become more and more a regular practice. And one of the things that it, it helped me with was to get my body strong again after the chronic fatigue. And so um, when I was 30, I ran away to the circus. <laughs> Most people run away to the circus much younger. but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think any dreams that I had of being the world's best trapeze performer were, were not, <laughs> not going to be realised. <laughs> so where was that? What were you doing when... Yeah, when I ran away to the circus, well, I'd been working as a civil engineer for some years. This was my original degree. And, you know, I think at the time when I was really unwell, I'd realised that something had to change in my life. Things just weren't going where they wanted, where I wanted them, not where I wanted them to go, but they just weren't resonating, they weren't sitting well with me. So as part of my process of working out what I wanted to do with life, I went to the UK, like all 20-something Australians, to work out what I would do in life. And while I was there, I was going for weekly trapeze classes, just playing around, and I saw a sign-up for full-time circus school in Sheffield in the north of England. And I had just quit my job, the job I had in England, and I had no other job lined up. And I thought, when else in my life do I have... (laughs) Three months just to go away and run, run away to the circus. So I called them up. They said, if you want to audition, the auditions are next week. I booked a train to Sheffield. And then two weeks later, I was moving to Sheffield to go yeah. train circus full time. And how long did you do that for? Was it longer than the three months? Or? It was a three-month full-time course. And then yeah. I stayed up there for another three months to take advantage of the training space and the community and do some performing pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And, is, and is that something that it's like a six-month period and it's gone or or is there something that you still take from from that time? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I still take and one of those was that the the course was circus in performance opposed to, let's shall we say, the most amazing circus performer in the world. And like you've said, when you start circus at 30 instead of 20, you're never going to be circus or material. So what they taught us was how do you come up with a show based on what you've got? Whatever yeah. skills you have, how do you make an entertaining show rather than spending 10 years working technically on technical brilliance? Yeah. And so I think that comes through in my in some of my yoga classes, particularly yoga for pain, is how do we get people with different capacities moving beautifully and making a beautiful yoga practice, mm. whatever their capacity. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing was that's very much, um, I guess, led me to where I am was the realisation that I was able to do that. Yeah. So 
at the end of the course, we did a big show and I had specialised in quarter leaves, which is uh, the rope. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was climbing the rope. I was wearing boots with high heels and twirly things and hanging from the top of the rope singing Cows With Guns. And I looked out over the audience and I remember thinking, my goodness, Rachel, you've done this on four hours sleep and a little bit of adrenaline and (laughs) excitement. And so considering that not that long before that, I couldn't even get out of bed. I was so exhausted. This felt like a really big thing for me to have achieved that. Absolutely. And so I wanted other people to know that they could run away to the circus too, maybe not literally, but they could they could have the experience that they wanted in their life. And so that's definitely a part of what I'm doing. Well, it's interesting that you said a few months earlier that that would have seemed impossible. I was going to ask you a question of, you know, maybe five or ten years earlier, would you have ever imagined that you could do that? But even maybe shorter than that, it seems as though that experience of living with pain and then moving towards um, being able to use your body in an expressive performance way must have, yeah, I can get that feeling that it must have just been amazingly transformative. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was, yeah. It's not an experience. Um, and I had always thought, oh, wow, gosh, if you'd asked me in engineering school, if I'd go to circus school, that would have been blown away. But you're right that even a few months prior to that, it was just a, I hadn't even thought of the possibility. Yeah. So is that... Um is that how you see it? Is, is that that was a transformative experience or was it... How, how do you see it now when you look back at that? I think it's one of many transformative experiences that are made possible by, I guess, the conditions that we make available. And, you know, I think if at that time that I'd been really unwell and had been for probably about seven years. And I could have just kept going, forcing myself through days at work, um, hoping for the best. But I think it was only because I was able to resign from my job and create some space to be open to what might come up that these kind of things could yeah. could appear for me. Yeah. So for you over, the, over that time, you know, mm. through the engineering and... and you know, being in the UK and, and through to yeah. now, what what do you think are the <clears throat> are there particular people who've really been influential for you or ideas or? Yeah, during that time, particularly, one person is um, William Vary, whose field of practice is apathology, and I met Will because he was running a, like a master's unit in sustainability leadership at my workplace, so. Um, it was tailored to the workplace. And I can't remember now what it was about that learning, but there was a rigour and a depth that I had just not experienced in education or the workplace prior. And I think, you know, possibly like happened, I don't know, maybe this happens to quite a lot, but I sort of went up to him at the end and I said, how do you, how do, you do what you do? <laughs> and, you know, at that point I was thinking about uh, leaving to go overseas and sort of on a whim, I just called him and said, can I ask you for some advice? Yeah. And, you know, Will's been a really important mentor and I don't think I'd be doing what I do now if I hadn't. So where's he based? Is he here in Perth or...? He's in Victoria now. He Victoria. was was WA based but moved over to Victoria. So I, I can't even say the word that yeah. you said before. What was that? 
um, field that he works in? In apathology. Apathology. So what, what is that? Yeah, it's a really good question and a really challenging one to answer. <laughs> and perhaps one way that I could try to describe it, and um, perhaps you can forgive me if I'm not very eloquent or I don't quite oh, get it. Is even if, just a pointer is a good thing. Yeah. Um, if we think of, um, say, a lot of healthcare is around absence of disease, fixing pathology. And so if you imagine a mirror and you're looking into the mirror and behind you is the pathology and all the things that you want to fix and at the level of the mirror is the absence of your any problems. And then on the other side of the mirror, there's the opposite to that. There's the presence of wellness, but particularly the presence of wellness that leads to more possibilities. And so... Is apathology the recognition that there is that possibility or that opportunity for wellness? Is that... Because a lot of yeah. traditional sort of perspectives, I suppose, around health or well-being is, is sort of uh, based on, on negative perspectives. Mm. Yeah, I think apathology sees that there's an alternative to the ways perhaps we've typically looked at um, human wellness and humanity-level wellness. And it's a, it's a practice and it's an inquiry space and it's um, like the field's always changing the more that we know about it. So that's perhaps another insight into kind of how it works to help us learn more about the possibilities that come from allowing health and flourishment in this yeah. moment. <laughs> so do those ideas influence what you do now? Do you yeah, they do uh, They do a lot. And, I mean, it's hard to articulate them, of course, yeah. as, you've, as you've seen. But I guess one of the ways where I think my work has shifted is in a shift from wanting to fix things that aren't as good as they could be to creating something really beautiful that allows more people to flourish. So... You know, if someone comes in with pain, you know, of course, initially we want to check that there's nothing causing that pain that we need to take out or fix. And in the beginning, we might work on um, helping with their symptoms of stress, fatigue, the foggy brain and all those things so they can feel a little bit normal. Then those habits that they've got of eating well, of doing a practice, whether it's yoga or something else, and feeling well, they're maintaining their wellness. But then often the question becomes, well... Well, now what? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the really interesting space is the, the now what. And I think for, you know, I think there are many of us who mm. are so impacted by, you know, the, the niggles or the, the limitations that we experience or we see mm. that you don't necessarily, like I think many of us don't see the opportunity, don't see the the you know, that when we're free of those limitations, whether they're physical or mm. emotional or, you know, spiritual or whatever it is that you can't, like, to then sit in that space of saying, you know, actually I'm, I'm now have the space or the energy or the freedom to move forward or, mm. to, or to try something different. Yeah. So do you find yourself in that position of, of being able to help people or, you know, to, to yeah, assist people work through those next steps? Yeah, and it's and when I do get to do work in that space, it's absolutely um, amazing because I think for a lot of people, 
the pain and those physical symptoms, it points to something that needs tending to, but it's just often not what we think. You know, often if part of our body is sore, we presume that it's a physical injury. But, of course, medically we know that you don't need tissue damage to feel pain. And so I think the pain, surprisingly, and not that we want people to have pain in order to have these experiences, but for some people the pain is what gives them the space to Mm. be able to consider Mm. what happens next. And I think pain, you know, I suppose as we're sort of touching on it really is, is, is not always physical. It's not always, you know, there's a cut or, or something. It can be psychic pain. It can be, you know, yeah, all sorts of other expressions of that. So. Yeah, exactly. And we know that if you have social isolation, you're more likely to feel physical pain. And if you're under mental stress, you'll feel more physical pain and vice versa. So it's a really... I don't want to say complex because I think that means it's something that sounds like something we can't face, but there's a richness of experience in yeah. it. Mm. Yeah. So what I suppose what I'm interested in is is where where do you see your sort of purpose in all of that in terms of where you've chosen to work and, and the experiences that you're seeking in your life? Where, mm. What drives you towards that? What's the the energy and the purpose behind that for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, a challenging one to answer. What drives me to do this work? Um, I suppose one aspect of it is seeing that people have got the potential and perhaps the desire for wanting their lives to be richer, to make contribution, to make meaning, but maybe haven't always seen what are those possibilities for them and and also what are the possibilities that are unique to them, not what everyone else is telling you you should have or should do if you're yeah. a sensible adult. And so then being able to see the really unique ways that people manifest, those, you know, for example, with, you know, the Yoga for Pain program, people, learn essentially the same things but the way that impacts their life is really really different whether it changes someone's relationship or their work or the way they exercise it's quite individual and unique and that's really fascinating for me to see and so when you notice those differences or those impacts that people can have as a as a outcome or as a consequence of the work that you're doing that gives you energy gives you yeah it definitely gives me energy it gives me um well it gives me meaning it gives me reason to keep going yeah because if people weren't getting there i'd be thinking what's the what's the point (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, that's true so is that something that's really like if you go all the way back to being an engineer Mm. and and um, can you see the shifts, the change of, of meaning and purpose for you as you've gone through that, that journey? Yeah, although I think perhaps what's shifted is the direction of that intention. So it's probably shifted from being a, what Rachel wants for herself and needs for herself to now feeling like I'm in a place to make that possible or help make that possible for other people. So I remember there was a time when I was um, about 25 and I had this dream to retire at 35 because 
the way I was going to do this was to buy property, renovate, and you know this old this dream, and sell. And I was going to be so wealthy that at thirty five I wouldn't have to work anymore. Yeah. And looking back, it's ridiculous, but it came from a place of feeling like I couldn't physically continue what I was doing, and so feeling that I needed a way out in order to enjoy life. So, you know, I think. As ridiculous as it sounds now, it came from a place of intention, a good intention for myself that I wanted to be doing something that I loved. Um, I didn't want to be tired all the time. And so, you know, in the stories that I've been telling, it was there was a, then a shift for me to think, oh, okay, well, there's more than just not being tired. There's actually being energised by what I do. And when I found something I was energised by, I thought, oh, no, I can do this until I'm 65 or 95. I'll have the yeah, energy for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then along the way, as well as this shift from sort of how do I avoid being tired and in a job I don't like to how do I find passion in what I'm doing, um, was also from looking at what do I need. So you're thinking, oh, well, how might this actually be of service to, to others? So when I'm interested in, in that sort of perspective of, finding opportunities to work in a way that actually has has been energizing rather than just um functional uh yeah. and and was that something that uh you actually sought or is it just something that you then ex- like noticed that mm. certain types of work actually gave you what you were seeking so. yeah that's a really good question i remember i had big dreams of um, another big dream after the property dream was uh, doing something like foreign aid and going into war-torn countries and and doing something good that way. And that seemed really important. But I think that that was probably, there's a bit of a disconnection from that. That seemed like a good way to go help some people elsewhere. And so I never really ended up doing that. And then I think it took a while to, to feel it, to embody that same question. And, what I, you know, the, and this has probably happened for lots of people, is sitting in the office, keeping myself busy so that I looked like I was busy for eight hours a day, filling out some forms that someone said they needed, and importantly, seeing other people feel like they weren't particularly happy with their job. And they also weren't very healthy, not everybody, of course, but seeing people in that situation. I just thought, there's got to be a better way, there's got to be something different. And so I think it's it just it started from then the point of what is the alternative. And it sounds as though there were some times when you, yeah, you know, you're in the UK, you left that job, and and opened yourself up to the opportunity to to experience things that, mm. you know, wherever that went. I mean, you know, that could have left you or led you to the similar experience of feeling like you were just pushing paper around or. Mm. But, uh, but what it did do is actually open you up to that experience of feeling the, the experience of being in the, you know, performance space and then obviously other things, the, the yoga coming into being something that actually yeah. has meaning for you. Yeah, I think there's something about being out of your, your comfort zone that makes you a little bit open and try out different things in perhaps a more um, relaxed mode than I might normally. And one of the things about being in London was discovering the social enterprise movement where lots of young people were starting businesses with a social aim and they were making money from that. Yeah. And for me, little girl from Perth, my mind was actually absolutely blown away by that. 
And that certainly opened up um, my eyes to the many different ways that you could, you know, yeah. survive in the world but also <coughs> give something back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where I first met you was really around that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it, it is something which is... Uh, has that dual purpose, I suppose, is really about, you know, what, you know, I've got a vision or I've got a perspective in terms of what I think is going to to help numbers of people. It doesn't have to be changing the world, but, you know, it's mm. going to help a number of people and then also um, that I can sustain myself through that. Mm. Yeah. And, and is that uh, in the work that you do now through finding yoga, is that something that is important to you in terms of being able to, to have those dual, you know, that you can sustain yourself, but also that it's it's work that has meaning. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's, it's a really interesting question and I, it may be a question that goes on forever, but in a, in a lineage practice that's often been handed down from yeah. teacher to student and often for no money um, or in return for service perhaps, what does it mean to have an essentially commercial enterprise within that without being disrespectful to the field and you know on the one hand I know that well obviously I need to I need to eat and have a roof over my head in order to be able to do that work I also need to um, be doing work uh, I also need to be energized by the work and as we've talked about sometimes that comes through the results of the work um, but also part of that Maybe, and this is a question I'm still asking myself, is how much the financial aspect is a part of that. Yeah, yeah. Do you see um, the work that you do or, or, yeah, do you see that changing over the next few years or is it going to be like you've got something Mm. that actually is solid and solid is not the right word, but but that, you know, you've, you've... got a place where you'll continue doing that or do you, th- do you mm. think that it's going to change? That's a good question. If I look back on the last couple of years about what's changed, I think the the scale of my work has changed. Perhaps at the heart it's the same. But, you know, for example, working originally with individuals and then in this last year, moving into practitioner training, so getting OTs and physios and yoga teachers to all work together to learn how yoga can help their patients with pain. And what they've found in the process is how much a yoga practice helps them as health professionals to be kind to themselves, yeah. to not be judgmental of their, their patients and to stay healthy while they're caring for others. And that was a quite a big step up. It felt like a big, a big new level. So I would suspect, although I can't be sure, that there's probably going to be another extrapolation yeah. for finding yoga. But it, but it sounds as though there's still a continuity in terms of where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah, I think the underlying process and how we do what we do will probably stay essentially the same, but perhaps and hopefully become richer and more nuanced. Yeah. And do you think that your, um, I mean, there's, there's, the practice or the business or however you see it, but um, do you think your purpose or your meaning in 10 years' time or 20 years' time is on a is on its sort of continuous path or can you see that there's going to be shifts again for you 
in this, if you look back 10 years, there's been shifts if you look forward for 10 or 20. Yeah. Gosh, it's really hard to, to know. And, you know, I've yeah. actually recently been looking back over old, even old diaries from when I was a teenager. That's scary. And, oh, <laughs> it's horrific. <laughs> but it's that question, am I the same person and will I be the same yeah. person? And, you know, I was reading Oliver Sacks' autobiography over the weekend and in his conversation with a friend, his friend was sort of saying it was like this cognitive confusion to think that he was the same person as he was 10, 20 years ago, but it appeared that he probably was the same person. And it sort of feels a little bit like that. Are you sure that's me? Well, I guess it was. And so... We get the opportunity, I think, to keep reinventing ourselves. Yeah. In a, in a way. But so. the same, well, I mean, even if you look at it in a sense of, um, you know, pure, rational, you know, mm. there's not many cells in the, in the body that's the same as it was you know, a few months ago, you know, we're regenerating ourselves continually at a cell level, so. Yeah, exactly. So I guess there probably will be big changes in the next 10 years, but what they will be, I shall be open to. Yeah, but open, yeah, I, I can see from what you've been saying that there has been those opportunities that you've been open to, so... You've allowed that to to be part of your experience. And I think open with intention. So tell me more. So we can kind of be open and go from thing to thing and try out new things and go to new places and it's all very exciting. Yep. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. For me, I think that after that exploratory time in my life, I was able to settle into something that felt important. And so, you know, with my daily yoga practice and other practices I've got, there's this intention to help us have radiant bodies with compassionate understanding of others and for people to have meaning in their life. So the intention will sort of guide perhaps where which experiences are the right ones to take at that time. Yeah. I was reading something recently where it was saying if, if we, you know, in, in our brains, if we would actually consider every single piece of stimulus that was being experienced by our body, we would be overwhelmed every second. You yeah. know, you know we're, we're lucky if we're processing, you know, in our, in our thinking brain, we're lucky if we're processing, you know, 1% or even a half a percent of what's coming at us, probably even less. But, you know, um, so that, that choice, that intention is what you're talking about. So yeah. the way you filter, the way you choose. Yeah, yeah, the way you know if something that you're about to do is aligning with your purpose yeah. or whether it's sending you off for a distraction. And do you think that um, your practice of of yoga, but I'm sure other things as well, meditation or or just your beliefs and your experiences, Mm. do you think that um, you've really... I'm I'm interested, I suppose, in terms of how clear that is for you or, or, you know, is there... Do your practices in life actually, you know, support you in, in terms of knowing what your meaning is and... 
That is a very good question. Do my practices support me in knowing? Yeah, I think they do. And a simple way is that one of the purposes of yoga is to calm the fluctuations of the mind. So if my mind is calm, I'm more able to see clearly why I'm making a choice rather than doing it out of fear, like trying to retire at 35. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I guess you know a lot of the lineage practices have got um, compassion practices. So yeah. for people who've studied Buddhism, many people are familiar with metta, loving-kindness meditation. So I think those sort of things we kind of know will change how we feel in situations. And then, as I often say, the teacher appears at the right time. Mm. So I've had different teachers in my in my life and I guess they tend to appear and provide what is needed for the next stage. And often I don't really know how that's going to pan out, but yeah. the practice feels right and it feels necessary. So a couple of years ago and I met um, Swami Alakananja, a, a yoga teacher, and I just had a, a feeling that I wanted to go see her and I saw her for a one-to-one and she said, do you want to do this properly? I said, well, I suppose I should. I've been doing this 20 years. <laughs> and she said, right, you must do it every morning between 4.30 and 6.30. No point doing it for six months, one year. You must do it for two years. And I'm nearly two years into that now. And for me, getting up at a quarter to six in the morning, for me, is very, 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 very early. And even five, ten years ago, I couldn't imagine that that could have been possible for me. But she turned up and I've done it. And as a result of that, I've got a new vigour and you focus and yeah, discipline for yeah. this phase of my work. Yeah. So that that engaged a bit of trust, though. I mean, you had to trust that what she was saying was useful or that it that it had meaning for you. Yeah, and and again, um, to so I suppose yoga is my my practice, and in my household, I do get told off a little bit, perhaps, about talking too much about yoga. <laughs> but I mentioned one more time. Uh, you'll hear yoga teachers say, don't have blind faith in the teacher. So you you have a bit of the trust, you try it out, but then you see if it works. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of um, discrimination for yeah, oneself. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, I mean, that's, I suppose, in lots of parts of life, you know, you can blindly trust people. But, um, yeah. So where else do you get your sort of inspiration or or... Um, yeah, I'm interested in the, in the sorts of things that you read or you listen to or you, yeah, how do you, how do you sort of find inspiration and, and yeah. refreshment? Well, um, I actually, I come from a long line of teachers. My mum and my grandmother were both teachers, so um, I think there was this desire for learning that was passed down, and particularly with my my mum, which I think informs how I read now she was a speech and drama teacher so there was a lot of literature but particularly greek mythology and Roman mythology so how do we collectively make meaning about what's happening and about what's right or what's wrong and i did go to a catholic primary school and one of the amazing benefits of that is that you get to study the bible which might not sound great but in terms of literature now, there are a lot of biblical references, so it's really academically great. <laughs> but it also, when you combine it with those other stories, helps shape how we're understanding what's going on. And so I'll read now different yoga texts where I perhaps might bring that same sort of mind of considering what does this text show us about where we've been and where we might be going. In more modern terms, 
blog that I love is um, Brain Pickings by Maria Popova. She's oh, okay. I haven't seen that one. She's a beautiful writer. She combines literary and philosophical references into quite accessible blog posts, but they get you thinking. Yeah. And with links to longer texts, if you happen to be so inclined. Yeah. And for kind of body nerd stuff, like how the body works, I listen to the Liberated Body podcast, which with uh, Brooke, a lady called Brooke in the US, interviews body workers from all around the world to think about, to talk about how they understand how the body works and what its implications are for practice. Oh, well. well, I'll put the links of those on both of those, the blog and the podcast mm-hmm. on the on the webpage because... Um, yeah, they sound interesting. They are. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by um, the, the, yeah, whether it's blogs or podcasts or, or similar things, but, you know, the the passion that people have around particular topics and, and yeah. Yeah, and it's so amazing it's, how much you can learn these uh, days just by tuning in and, and by tuning into someone on the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. It's incredible. So, um, do you, uh, yeah, are there other things that you're involved in that, um, that you wanted to talk about? I know you've spoken about the work that you do and those sort of things, but. Mm, one of the things I've really enjoyed is, um, getting to be part of the School of Life, Perth. It's a philosophy oh, yeah. school, Alain yeah, yeah. de Botton in the UK and, um, um, a lady called Andy's been doing some pilots of it here, and I was yeah. running um, How to Make a Difference, which was an absolute gift to be able to run that because a lot of the talk is around social enterprise, choosing your path, different ways you can make yeah. a difference. So I, I think it's a really great thing to have a school like that in Australia to get people of all ages th- thinking critically but drawing on literature, culture and the arts. I, I loved it. Um, I only went to one thing when it was on last year. Uh, was it last year or this year? I can't remember. Last year. Last year. Um, and, um, but I was looking at the program and there were just so many things. I was thinking, oh, I really want to do that and I want to do that. And so I really hope that it does come again. Yeah, or you can fly over to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> Very true. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, we're getting close to the to the finish, so I'm interested in, in really is there anything that I've um, sort of haven't asked the right question. So I'm interested in whether there are some thoughts floating around in the head as a result of this discussion that need to be let loose. Oh, gosh, thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was one question that I heard one of the other interviewees answer which was if there was advice for people working out their purpose yeah and so I thought about that so what advice would I give and particularly this probably speaks to the part of me and maybe in other people that felt I had to do everything by 30 and if it wasn't done by then it was too late and you know I think to take time to find out what it is you're going to do and within that to let go of the shoulds and more go with the must even if you're not quite sure why. And then let the purpose emerge from between the cracks. And but, I mean, that's interesting. I'm really glad you brought that up because I had neglected to ask that question. I do try and ask that question to people. But um, 
it's an interesting having the space. So you're talking about really having the space and the um, there is an element there of, of space in terms of being able to notice the experiences that you have and the, you know, whether it's just, I, I wonder whether sometimes that's, it's not a blindingly, you know, it's not a, a flash of lightning that, that comes to, to most of us. It's probably much more subtle than that. So how do, how do you get there? Like how, how does somebody who's perhaps got a really busy life and, and um, how do you create that opportunity to, to notice yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, of creating the space to notice. And one, I think, beautiful example of showing how a purpose evolves over a lifetime was the Oliver Sacks autobiography. And I'm mentioning that because I just, I've only just read it. And it's a very gentle read. And he's done amazing things in his life, but there's no grandiosity in the way he writes. But there's these beautiful things that he produces that over time build up to this real contribution. And then, um, you know, by the end of the book, it's just this feeling that there was this legacy he left. So that's kind of one example of being able to feel that you might be in it for the long haul, that this is, it's not something that you have to do and then finish Mm -hmm. and then sign off so you can go retire, but it's going to be part of the way that you live. And so... If it's going to be part of the way that you live, how might you start now in really small doses? And that might be that you do five minutes of meditation in the morning. And that might be where you start. And gradually those little practices that you do, they start to become habits. Even if it's as simple as five breaths in the morning. Yeah. And then I think to take time to reflect, to write The Artist's Way was a really influential book for me and giving me the time to to write and consider how I could be more creative but also just to get things out of my head. Is The Artist's Way, is that a book, is it? Or? Yeah, it's by Julia Cameron. It's sort of a 12-week okay. um, guide yeah. to helping people recreate their creative self and what it does is in creating the space for creativity, yeah. um, things come up that you never would have expected if you said... I must make a macrame potholder by next week. Yeah. It's a bit more open than that. Yeah. Mm. What was going through my mind at one point when you were talking there is is that um, perhaps this is what Oliver Sacks' book was sort of pointing to as well, is is that life is a process rather than a project. So it's not sort of a, you know, there's a clear set of objectives at the beginning and you can sort of, you know, do periodic reports against the objectives and then you can say that it was all achieved. Yeah. <laughs> so not the engineering perspective. No. Yeah, and funnily enough, just I was speaking with a friend who I went to engineering school with <laughs> and we were talking exactly like this, this feeling that we need to know the purpose of what is the purpose yeah, of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's really helpful to to create things of tangible value yeah. and to write a book or to do a performance or to write a blog post or to make a piece of art that show what you're thinking at a time. Yeah. But, yeah, not to be so set on that end result yeah. that if something comes up along the way, you can't go with it. And I think um, 
I mean, this is just reflecting something I read recently and I can't remember where, but, um, you know, as humans, we're, we're constantly making meaning of what we're experiencing, but we're also making meaning retrospectively in terms of what we've done. So, you know, we look back and, and perhaps see things that were, in a sense, really completely unrelated, but we try and make the meaning as to how one led to the other. And, um, uh, and, and they, that may be the case, but it may also just be that, you know, you had one opportunity and then you had another and they were actually unrelated. But, yeah. yeah, we seem to like telling stories. Yeah, yeah. And it's been um, really interesting to hear your story. So, and stories, because there's been a whole series of things that you've spoken about. And, and um, I've really appreciated your uh, honesty and your uh, openness about telling um, some of those stories and um, I've really felt a couple of really interesting things in what you've said I mean even just right at the end there where you speaking about um, that sense of, of um, you know does it really matter that we know our purpose maybe it is just that sense of, of you know having the opportunities and the experiences and, and um, uh, yeah, creating the space each time to understand where you're going. I don't, even though I'm doing these interviews around living with purpose, I don't think that there is, for me anyway, a grand purpose that is being, you know, unfolded over time. I think it really probably is much more about, you know, the day, the week, the, the living experience of being able to reflect and, and understand, yeah, what, what's mm. the right thing now, so. Mm. it's a good question. Yeah. So um, it's been a pleasure to spend the time with you and um, I wish you all the, the best in terms of working with people and, um, yeah, creating the spaces for reflection and growth for all the people that you're going to come into contact with. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Living With Purpose interview series. There are show notes for each episode that you can get on the www.livingwithpurposeinterviews.com website. You can also connect with Francis on Twitter at underscore Francis Lynch, on LinkedIn, or on email at francislynch.me at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode as a podcast, then subscribe on your player and tell your friends. Thanks and join us again soon.